Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Bader, and my guest today is the journalist and author Peter Gill. Peter specialises in the developing world, and his new book, Famine and Foreigners, looks at Ethiopia in the 25 years since Live Aid. Peter, welcome to Development Drums. Good to be here, Evan. Let's start, as, as you do in the book, by looking back at Ethiopia 25 years ago. So everybody remembers the report by Michael Burke of the BBC, October 1984, which was filmed in Korem. Uh, but you were actually the first journalist to get to Korem then, and that was recorded in a documentary that you made, uh, Bitter Harvest. What did you see? What was it like? You recall the context of those times. The uh, Marxists in uh, Addis were celebrating the 10th anniversary of their uh, revolution, and the last thing they wanted was for... Western journalists and the press to be discussing famine conditions when they wanted a celebration. So for those critical months in 1984, they kept the press right out of northern Ethiopia. And long after the celebrations were over, me and my team from Thames Television were the first to be allowed to travel north. And I do always recall that first morning in Coram where we turned up at this large relief camp on the outskirts of the town and there was a young Ethiopian relief official with a little black notebook and he was in charge of the camp and kept details of what was happening and that morning for the first time in the previous 24 hours 100 had died of starvation in that single 24-hour period. In other words, starvation and death was, by early October 84, spiralling grossly out of control. So this is about two, two days' drive north of Addis, and you had driven up, presumably, or had you flown up? No, you? we had driven up. We'd driven yeah. the whole way up. And as you approached... Corum, what did you see? What were, do you, did you see enormous numbers of people? Were people walking there from, from, from the villages and from the countryside? What was happening? Corum itself is yet another um, unremarkable down on uh, the way north. It's also at the top of a great uh, escarpment as the Ethiopian highlands unfold to the north, uh, and there were a lot of people on the move. They were coming, of course, if you uh, you do know the geography, from east and west rather than up the road we were travelling. But there were families on that road. And, you know, being the inquisitive and inquisitorial uh, journalist, one stops and asks them uh, and... Uh, you know, I recall giving them what food we had in our vehicle, which was a pathetic and, um, you know, precious little use uh, uh, as a gesture. But many, many people were on the move, and there were some 50,000 in that camp, and 100 were then dying on a daily basis. So unlike many journalists, you actually knew something about the country. You had been a VSO teacher in southern Sudan. You had visited Ethiopia often. How did, how did it come about that you had focused particularly on this famine? What, what was it that, that brought you to Ethiopia then, wanted, that made you want to, to, to make this documentary? The remarkable thing about uh, that famine in '84, of course, was that it was no secret to anyone. Uh, the uh, build-up had been uh, charted in you know, occasional newspaper uh, pieces. Uh, the, there was a remarkable lack of interest on the part of the major Western overseas uh, aid givers. And, the, and television had begun uh, to show uh, interest. And I had pressed for months uh, knocked on the door of the Ethiopian embassy in London. It was a country that I was fascinated by already, wanted to return to, and eventually, in large part because we were making 
a documentary and not, if you like, shock horror news. And the Ethiopians, as you also know, are and have always been extraordinarily sophisticated in their responses to uh, Western media and to the outside world. They thought uh, that a more political documentary that then contrasted the overflowing grain stores of Europe with starvation in northern Ethiopia would be, as it were, more palatable politically as far as they were concerned than the simple awfulness of people dying. And it's worth recalling that the previous government, the Haile Selassie government, had been brought down 10 years ago partly as a consequence of a Western documentary about the 1973 famine in Ethiopia. So that must have been in their minds as they were wondering whether to let you come and make this film. This is absolutely right. In uh, the modern era, uh, as far as Ethiopia is concerned, famine is uh, a dirty word. Uh, Famine uh, is uh, not uh, acknowledged readily, even now, in uh, uh, in Ethiopia and uh, in 1973 as a direct consequence uh, of a big British uh, documentary at that time called The Unknown Famine, uh, the uh, regime, uh, the imperial government of uh, Haile Selassie was uh, directly Undermined, and the student agitators of that era used that documentary, used stills from that documentary to criticize uh, the government, to uh, take on the government, to take to the streets over uh, the government's uh, inaction. And on the very eve of Haile Selassie's deposition, the that documentary this is many months after it was shown in britain that documentary was shown on ethiopian television and haile selassie was obliged by the military to sit and watch it let's let's um focus on ethiopia's vulnerability to famines i mean as well as we've talked a bit about the 73 famine and the 1984 famine that that you made a film about and of course there was the great famine of 1888 to 1892, which is still talked about in Ethiopia as as the evil days. What is it about Ethiopia that makes it vulnerable to famine? I mean, this is not obviously not a new. It's not climate change. It's not a new phenomenon. Indeed, uh, Ethiopia's leading historian uh, Richard Pankhurst uh, has uh, researched this entire subject of uh, famine historically in Ethiopia and has concluded, I think that between the 15th and the 19th centuries, there was about one a decade. One every 10 years. One every 10 years, uh, you know, leading to uh, significant deaths. I mean, that, that well, obviously widespread death by starvation is uh, a working definition of uh, famine. Well, I imagine that it's got a good deal to do with uh, Ethiopian uh, topography, a good deal to do with uh, Ethiopia's population growth, uh, a good deal to do with the very antiquity of Ethiopian civilization and culture. We're dealing with uh, a, a country, as you know, of great remoteness. It's always been remote from the rest of the world, and its communities in the north and elsewhere are remote from each other. Um, population has been uh, has has risen, and uh, the I, I, I suspect environmental degradation, although it's only recently become a sort of more fashionable issue, has always been at uh, issue, and as is still the case, all. Almost all Ethiopian farmers and their families are dependent on the rains. And when the rains fail, as assuredly they do uh, off and on, there is going to be hunger. I think the important thing is that it was simply part of Ethiopian life and death until 
the 20th century when the outside world, um, a better healed outside world, began to take an interest from the 1930s onwards. And that has promoted death by starvation and famine conditions into in Ethiopia into a major humanitarian issue for the rest of the world and a major political issue for Ethiopian governments. So just to be clear, we're saying that Ethiopia has had famines, widespread death by hunger every 10 years or so, but it's really only in the last, uh, you know, at the end of the 20th century that the rest of the world knew about it and paid attention to it. Is that... That's absolutely right. I, I, uh, in, in this book, I start my own story of uh, famines and those and, and talking to those who were either suffering in those famines or who had a role in responding to them uh, back in uh, the 50s with the extraordinary figure of uh, Professor Mesfin Waldimariam, who was then uh, a young uh, geographer at Addis Ababa University and is now you know, one of those opposition thorns in the flesh that uh, the uh, government of Ethiopia has to uh, endure. And he, he wrote about famine in uh, the 70s, but he was referring back to his own experience of Tigray, northern Ethiopia, in a terrible famine in the 1950s. But, of course, this was before the dawn of the era of mass media in the West. And when, for instance, 20 years on, uh, Jonathan Dimbleby made his film, The Unknown Famine, that his was a single documentary that had that impact. A decade later, it was a news broadcast that made the waves, Michael Burke's uh, extraordinary report and reports from Ethiopia in October 1984. And it was, as Live Aid became subsequently, a great global event. I think Michael Burke's uh, famine, first and second famine reports, got played in by sort of 400 TV stations around the world. For the first time, this was a mass media event, and that's why, in my contention, it did change the world. The aid world was transformed by the enormity of that famine and the uh, enormity of the global focus on it. Let's let's look at the role of the media, because um, Amartya Sen uh, got the Nobel Prize for his study of famines, uh, which included a study of the 1973 famine. And he, yeah, this, is, this is his book, Poverty and Famines, which famously argues that famine is a lack of entitlement rather than a lack of food, that, the, that what happens in a famine is that people are too poor to eat, not that there isn't enough food to eat. And he claimed later in, a, in his book, Development is Freedom, that um, uh, there has never been a famine in a country with a free press. So his argument is that if you have media attention, if you have some kind of accountability in a society, you're not going to get a famine, that that you won't see that failure of entitlement that leads to famine. Where are you on, on this relationship between, you know, we started off saying that famines in Ethiopia were caused by topography and, and uh, being very isolated and, and uh, you know, the precarious rain-fed agriculture. Um, but Amartya Sen is saying, actually, it's a failure of the political system. And, you know, you're, you're pointing out the role of the media. So where are you on, on this relationship between famine and, and media and Amartya Sen's? I am no economist uh, at all, but I find uh, Amartya Sen's arguments, of course, extraordinarily uh, persuasive. There is no doubt uh, at all that the issue is one of entitlement and, uh, if you like, money in your pocket with which to uh, somehow acquire uh, the food uh, or travel to get the food or uh, a, a system where there is uh, enough money locally to draw the food in. That, that 
is undoubted. Where I wonder, frankly, is the further step that somehow uh, media democracy and uh, a liberal system are all necessary preconditions for the removal of famine. I see no reason why in principle, China is the obvious example, uh, why uh, more repressive uh, regimes can't, if the will is there, uh, ensure that uh, famine and hunger is borne down upon and eventually removed. So I just wonder um, whether Amartya Sen's arguments, when he pushes them to that point, aren't, if you like, a little sort of Western-centric, possibly because he's uh, a, a very great Indian, a, a little Indo-centric. His key comparison, of course, is between uh, India under imperial rule and and the 1943 famine in Bengal and all those terrible famines later on in the 19th century, which uh, the British uh, responded so uh, desperately badly to. And which uh, stopped and at the end of British rule. Indeed they did. And there has not been, well, there, were, there, was, uh, there was great hunger in Bihar in the 60s, as we know, but uh, India has borne down on that uh, pretty impressively, um, but even then, uh, here one gets into a discussion perhaps of the uh, nature of uh, Indian democracy and, democracy and how far that spreads, but there is uh, hunger, as we well know, in, in India, particularly uh, in uh, tribal communities uh, and uh, in eastern India, uh, Arissa and uh, other states where people do die still of hunger. But So your take roughly is that democracy and freedom of the press is a sufficient condition for the ending of famines, but not a necessary condition for the ending of famines. Is that, is that too simplistic a summation? No, I think that's a very good uh, summation. Okay, good. Let's, let's move on to the resettlement programme, because that's uh, uh, been a very controversial part of, uh, of the story of the Ethiopian famine in the 1980s. And in your book, you describe um, Alex Duval's claim that... The resettlement program run by the Marxist government then, the Mengistu government, uh, led to more deaths than the famine itself. Do you? Uh, you don't say in the book whether you whether you agree or not with that estimate. But you you do report a, a lively debate that was happening at the time about whether um, the resettlement, you know, the, given the resettlement program was going on whether that was uh, something that the NGOs and governments who were working there to provide famine relief should be concerned about. And, and so w- what's your view now looking back on, uh, on that episode? Well, to be fair, I think what uh, Alex Duval actually argues is that when resettlement, this huge programme introduced by the DERG to ship hundreds of thousands, I mean millions of people out of the supposedly exhausted highlands to more fertile uh, ground in, uh, in, in, in the lowlands. And it was done very often with uh, great uh, brutality. What Alex, I think, argues is that when that happened, this is after the, the, the great explosion of worldwide interest in the famine, people were dying in that resettlement program at a greater rate than famine and hunger was then killing them. I don't believe that Alex is actually arguing, because this is a misunderstanding, I don't think he was arguing that actually human rights abuses, including notably the resettlement program, somehow killed more people in that period than the famine. What he does argue, again, extremely convincingly... Is that so resettlement made it worse rather than... Made it worse. He, he, right. he says, doesn't he, uh, um, that uh, human rights abuses compounded right. uh, the, uh, the famine and uh, you know, more died uh, as a consequence right. of those abuses. And is that right? I believe that's absolutely right. The, the, the question is, you know, how many uh, more? Uh, the, uh, and 
you made the point about that uh, very lively uh, issue back in the 80s, which uh, in a sense keeps being revisited in one form or another, between um, agencies like Oxfam uh, that stayed and worked with or alongside uh, resettlement projects um, and uh, famously Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Doctors Without Borders, that uh, at least the French wing of uh, MSF uh, put their foot down, uh, declared this to be uh, a great uh, human rights uh, abuse and were thrown out of the country for their pains. And what's your view? Which 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 country director would you rather have been? Would you rather have been the Oxfam country director that stayed and worked to relieve famine, or the country director who, as MSF, is part of their mandate, bore witness to what was happening and was was thrown out? I think it's uh, pretty plain uh, from the book uh, uh, which approach then and since I t- uh, I personally favour. I'm hugely impressed from what I know about it, uh, if you like, by the the francophone NGO approach to some of these major issues. And it goes for both the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, uh, from which which did inspire, in many ways, the uh, establishment and and the growth of Médecins Sans Frontières. And uh, they are still the awkward squad. They still get uh, into a great deal of trouble, not least in Ethiopia. And uh, they, um, and and, uh, uh, on the other hand, I do believe that uh, some of our large British uh, NGO agencies have become more and more corporate and corporatized as time has gone on. They also, unlike the French wing of Médecins Sans Frontières rely increasingly uh, and substantially on uh, Western government funds. Médecins Sans Frontières in France, at least, famously uh, relies almost not at all on uh, official funds. And, and, and I believe that uh, NGOs, as well as the important work they do, these Western NGOs uh, are it, it is important that they be uh, the ginger group. It is it is important that they be the uh, awkward squad, not just in um, providing critiques of uh, you know Western aid um, management and uh, theory uh, and practice, but also in in fact how they. Uh, respond to these great uh, humanitarian crises and the politics of these crises in the, in the developing world. But it, it's quite easy as a, to see as a journalist that you feel some affinity for the idea of the way that MSF speaks truth onto power, and you know, as you say, it's the awkward squad. But are you really saying that it isn't? There isn't a role for some NGOs to not play that part, not see it as their role to play that part, but to make sure that hungry people get fed. I mean, don't we need both, perhaps? Is there, or are you... I mean, do you think, do you think that it was um, perhaps shameful that some of the NGOs working in Ethiopia in the 1980s were not more outspoken about the human rights abuses? Uh, uh, candidly, as the journalist, I, uh, of course, uh, welcome the uh, outspokenness of uh, people like um, Médecins Sans Frontières and tend, as a journalist, to uh, deprecate those who take a rather more uh, sort of corporate view of the world. Uh, it was said uh, it, at the time that, of course, the reason that... Oxfam and Save the Children could not or did not speak out and bang the table was that, and this is a very sound argument, that the British public, for a start, wanted 
its agencies to be there and working rather than antagonizing governments and getting thrown out with a clean conscience. So I wholly recognize this uh, dilemma. I do my best in the book simply, if you like, to describe it pro and con. But as, as, as a journalist, I'm going to sympathize with the, uh, with the outspoken. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guest is Peter Gill, the author of Famine and Foreigners, Ethiopia Since Live Aid. Peter, can we, can we now move a, a bit past 1984 and the, the terrible events then to look at what happened in 2003 when Ethiopia faced another major food shortage, at, but things panned out a bit differently. T- tell us what happened in 2003 and, and what that tells us about how Ethiopia has changed. 2003 was uh, the great famine that uh, fortunately uh, never was. Uh, the, there were more people in Ethiopia, indeed almost twice as many people in Ethiopia, who were in need of food aid in 2003 compared with those uh, 20 years before in 1984. A combination of Uh, alertness on the part of the Ethiopian government, um, responsiveness on the part of major Western donors, and some good fortune uh, rolled in the availability of food aid because it was in um, on great uh, freighters on its way to Iraq and for that uh, George Bush war and was not actually needed, meant that Uh, Instead of tens of thousands of people uh, dying, very few indeed died. Indeed, um, Alex Duval, whom we've already uh, quoted, uh, did his own studies on 2003 and concluded that um, child mortality had not increased uh, uh, at all as a consequence of that famine. And so one has to credit the aid community for having uh, responded well, and one has to credit the Ethiopian government for being uh, open and alert. And the other critical thing about 2003 is that it was, as far as the Ethiopian government was concerned, yet another um, opportunity to say, never again. And uh, the... uh, uh, thus, the introduction of um, uh, uh, systems, um, the, the uh, division between the acutely hungry and the chronically hungry, safety net arrangements were put in place that have supposedly transformed circumstances then. We both know, I think, that in the traditional famine areas of northern Ethiopia, there's been real progress and real uh, achievement in um, conservation measures, in um, irrigation measures, in water retention measures, and the rest of it. But as 2008 and other crises have uh, shown, elsewhere in the country, the record is nowhere near uh, as good Uh, And uh, hunger, sadly, uh, persists and it leads to significant number of deaths still. So are you saying that the political situation in 2003, and this is a a new government, the Marxist government having fallen at the beginning of the 1990s, this is the Melissa government that we still have today, that it's because of that changed political situation that 2003 didn't develop into the kind of famine that we had seen in Ethiopia in 1984 and in 1973. I absolutely uh, believe that. I think the avoidance of famine in uh, 2003 was uh, hugely to the credit of uh, the Ethiopian government and indeed its donors. And when uh, Ethiopian officialdom tells one now that uh, famine is a a thing of the past, that needs to be taken with, you know, many, many grains of salt. But I believe it is fair to say that uh, Ethiopia should never, ever again uh, suffer uh, famine on the scale of 
1984 or 73, or all those uh, famines that cropped up relentlessly once a decade uh, throughout history. There is no reason why uh, it should, but of course it depends on uh, the, the politics as much as the alertness. So there will be people who, uh, reading your book, think you're a bit of an apologist for the menace regime. You had a couple of interviews with him, and it's it's generally true that politicians and aid workers and journalists who spend time with him tend to be rather impressed. He, he's uh, clearly very bright, very hardworking, very committed. Um, but seen from the outside, from the West, it's not clear that this is a government that leaves as much democratic space as we would like. And you have a chapter in which you talk about the 2005 elections, and perhaps we should... Uh, describe for people what that was like but what's you know how do you respond to people who uh, who think that you've been a bit bamboozled by uh, by the courteous and uh, well-spoken Melisanawi it's certainly said of uh, Meles isn't it that uh, you know he rather enjoys engaging with uh, foreigners and having these uh, robust, actually, and very candid uh, discussions and debates. And he is less available, less open uh, to his uh, own people. I'm not quite sure that whether that is entirely fair. I kept going um, to attend great sort of agricultural festivals uh, around Ethiopia, where he was always showing up uh, to, to give him credit. I think he he takes all this seriously. Uh, I know it's an old uh, uh, refuge uh, for the uh, apologist, but I just wonder whether one can't make uh, a distinction between you know this very very uh, sophisticated man and uh, you know admittedly many aspects of uh, the regime he uh, runs and critically I think party control and party discipline and you know if you're not a member of the party then uh, you are you know uh, you are an outsider and potentially an antagonist and uh, a, a, an enemy he is an old marxist he uh, uh, had to make a really significant adjustment to the real world when he came into power in the early 90s but that old Marxist, Leninist discipline, uh, he would argue, well, I'm not quite sure how far and how openly he would uh, argue this, but uh, it is uh, arguable that Ethiopia's problems, developmental problems, are so overwhelming that a degree of political stability and uh, and perhaps an aversion to the risks inherit inherent in running an, a very open very liberal uh, uh, system uh, need legitimately to be uh, taken on board and the 2005 election is uh, the critical Example: We've now got the 2010 elections, which were, uh, you know, regarded in the West as even less satisfactory. What you had in 2005 was a great opening of political space in the run-up to, and indeed on election day itself. Then the arguments uh, kicked in. Rather caught the government by surprise. In fact, there was this political opening and. The opposition did rather better than the government was expecting in yes. 2005. Uh, I, I've, uh, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't covering them. But I've talked to uh, a, a lot of people, including a number of uh, observers, you know, formal observers uh, at that time. And it, it's undoubtedly a complex picture. But... Some of the observers whom I spoke to and whose uh, word I most trust do not believe that it was a fixed election in the sense that um, in the sense that it was uh, the, the results were rigged. Uh, the opposition, um, Bahanu Nega 
I quote extensively in the book because I had uh, a long meeting with him, believes that it was completely fixed. I, uh, uh, it, it, it was not uh, well uh, handled. Uh, the uh, opposition was uh, angry and on the streets. There is no doubt that the, up to 200 uh, people in two major set twos later on in 2005 were actually killed on the streets of Addis Ababa and in other towns and that was uh, you know a terrible set of uh, events but I do not believe that that election was a straightforward fraud which is how it's been uh, represented uh, in the West, not least by those famous European Union observers of that time, nor do I believe, as a matter of fact, that the 2010 elections were necessarily an all-out fraud. What you, what you have, and this is, I believe, you know, an important uh, issue and uh, an argument uh, uh, what you have uh, is uh, a, a a great degree of growing party control, a huge party membership, uh, and all the sort of discipline and the pressures that uh, come from that. But I think, particularly. Western Westerners and liberal Westerners and indeed the aid givers have to start working out, particularly in a rapidly changing world, what it is that we want and what it is we would like to see in countries like Ethiopia. Do we want fully functioning liberal democracies with uh, you know all the human rights bells and whistles? Or wasn't the first objective that we set ourselves... Earlier, rather earlier on in the development era, in, in the last decade or two, the bearing down on extreme poverty. And if you start balancing that in the Ethiopian context, I do believe that the Ethiopian government has a significantly good record and that we need to examine... But shouldn't we want both? I mean, I, I think a lot of people would listen to this and say, well, this is kind of sophistry. This is, you know, um, sure, Meles will argue that we need a period of stability and, you know, not ready for democracy yet and democracy will come when economic growth happens. But actually, you know, we know from Amartya Sen's work that democracy and freedom of speech are critical drivers to reducing the incidence of famine. And we've said, you've said yourself that 2003 was a credit to the government because they were taking action in a way that pre their predecessor governments had not. But that suggests that far from being a trade-off between democracy and the, the alleviation of extreme poverty, that these are, um, uh, these are complements, that these, these are symbiotic, that, that you know, the danger has been across Africa. We see um, leaders coming into power who we admire at first. Robert Mugabe was one, perhaps Paul Kagame, Museveni. Yep. You know, that that we tolerate uh, a degree of authoritarianism um, and, it, and things get bad for um, African countries as a consequence of our tolerance, that we should, we should be standing up more strongly for democracy and freedom and that will prevent these countries from sinking in, sinking back into a kind of authoritarianism that has in the past been a major cause of extreme poverty. Of course, we would like to see both. We would like to see um, transformational development on the one hand, and we would like to see uh, uh, fully functioning liberal democracies uh, as well. Um, don't get me wrong, that is uh, the ideal. But I, I do question first whether in 2010-2011 uh, certainly whether uh, Western aid givers are any more in much of a position to uh, tell uh, African nations uh, what to do and how to behave and I'm not 
at all persuaded that aid conditionalities uh, have uh, achieved a great deal. They've been courteously and politely resisted by uh, uh, the Ethiopians. And in, in, the, in, the, in the area of market fundamentalism, I think we can all uh, agree that they probably did a rather good job in seeing off uh, the IMF. Now, I'm not saying that keeping uh, these Western liberals uh, you know, in their place is uh, necessarily uh, wholly uh, desirable. But I just pose the question again. Uh, what, apart from wanting an ideal world and an ideally governed and prosperous uh, Ethiopia, what did we, what does the development community actually seek from Ethiopia and uh, uh, and uh, other African countries. But Ethiopia is the iconic poor country and I would suggest has made as much progress as any in responding to critical development needs. Do we want uh, to bear down on extreme poverty? And uh, are we, or are we now determined to have uh, to, to seek to build uh, liberal democratic allies in uh, Africa in a changing world? I, um, you know, I've knocked around as, as a as a as a outsider and a journalist looking in on the development community now for um, you know many many years the British and uh, others went into this game to, famously with New Labour and Claire Short, to eliminate world poverty. There is very little reference in that, uh, those, that first famous white paper to governance and human rights. It's become an add-on, and I have suspicion that it serves, begins to serve our strategic interests rather than our real interests in seeing uh, Africa out of poverty. And Africa, Ethiopia accepted admittedly because it was never uh, colonised, and, and Africa that we did uh, as colonialists so much to leave in a totally unprepared state for the later 20th, 20th century and this century. So your book is entitled Famine and Foreigners, which is an interesting uh, juxtaposition. Um, uh, and it suggests that you think that foreigners have, be, have played an important role in both um, helping Ethiopia tackle famine, and uh, we should start with that, but also in terms of the, the long-term engagement and the effect of foreign engagement in Africa generally, and Ethiopia in particular. Let's... Let's focus first on the the role of of foreigners in dealing with famine. Is it your view that uh, things like live aid uh, made a difference, did actually reduce hunger, um, helped people live who would not otherwise have lived? We've seen recently a, a World Service uh, report suggesting that a lot of the money was siphoned off and used by rebel armies. What, what's your view? What's, you, you were there at the time and you've, you've um, you know, read the evidence um, more carefully than probably almost anybody. What's, what's your view on, uh, first on the role of foreigners in famine relief in Ethiopia? I have absolutely no doubt that that combination back in uh, the 80s of uh, immensely powerful media reports, Michael Burke's notably, uh, and the impact that they had on, um, you know, the pop world, not least, Bob Gildoff and uh, others, uh, led to the saving of a very, very large number of lives and that that movement that it inspired over these past 25 years, we may be moving into a new era now, but over those last 25 years... I believe that uh, it has that combination has continued to be extraordinarily influential in securing British and international commitment to 
dealing with uh, world poverty. Uh, that uh, uh, lives were saved then in very large numbers, thanks not just so much to live aid uh, money, uh, that was secondary to what uh, Geldof and others actually achieved in taking on the political uh, establishment here and elsewhere and shaming them into a greater and greater response. And you know, uh, Geldof and uh, Live Aid are uh, these days sort of rather uh, mocked and criticised. You mentioned that uh, BBC World Service report, uh, which uh, I was not uh, hugely uh, impressed by. Uh, it was uh, billed as a full-dress uh, radio documentary. Uh, it, it relied essentially on two significant dissident voices to say that uh, the to say that uh, very large quantities if not almost all of, they said 95% was the number they, they did almost all live aids uh, contributions to uh, northern Ethiopia and uh, to the starving there had been uh, siphoned off for uh, arms purchases uh, uh, frankly, I don't believe it, um, uh, um, but I r- regarded it uh, 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 as odd that uh, such emphasis was put on the word of uh, two people who had rather badly fallen out with uh, with the present government. So I believe that on the ground, Live Aid made uh, a difference far more uh, importantly. Uh, Gildoff et al. and Bono in the United States and uh, the whole Live Aid USA for Africa movement uh, has continued Live Aid, Glen Eagles, Blair, the African mission, have have continued to underpin this huge aid effort over the last 25 years. It's entirely another matter as to whether it has worked. To my mind, it's undoubtedly saved lives, a very large number of lives. Uh, The question is, uh, has development worked? Have these countries actually had their economies transformed by all the huge efforts and the huge um, sort of theorising that has gone on as to how to achieve prosperity. So Ethiopia is now the UK's largest aid recipient in Africa. But, you know, very large quantities of aid flowing to Ethiopia. Now it's a very large country. And people often forget that it's you know eighty, eighty-two million people. So it's uh, you know in terms of per capita aid, it's, it's not particularly high. But in terms of total aid volumes, it's a lot of money. And what is your view? You 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 are clear that as it were, the humanitarian relief worked and saved a lot of lives. But you seem to be implying much less certainty about whether the development assistance has really made a difference to transforming the economy. What's your... You know, where, when you reflect on it, is, has that been money well spent? I think it has been money well spent. Um, but I'm uh, by no means persuaded that it is... that it either has worked or is working to bring about the transformation that was promised. We didn't say we were going to save, uh, uh, Geldof said we were going to save uh, as many lives as possible, but that's not what the developmentalists have been uh, uh, arguing. They've said that we are going to eliminate world poverty. We um, We will make poverty history. All this uh, rhetoric, that has not yet worked. And I'm not, uh, I'm no economist, uh, Owen, as you uh, know, but I'm not persuaded that this concentration on the social sectors of development is uh, necessarily bringing about or likely to bring about the economic transformation that we say is the uh, essential component of developmental success. So let me unpack that. There are, there are two versions of that critique. One is, is that we've simply overclaimed that it was, this is money well spent saving lives, giving people access to health and education, water, uh, and measured in terms of the improvements in 
in human well-being, that's a, a well worthwhile thing to do. And that the problem is that we've claimed that we're going to eliminate world poverty, that we're going to bring about a transformation, and we could never have done that. I guess that's quite close to, to my view. The alternative view is that we could have brought about more of an economic and political transformation in developing countries and that we have failed to do so because we've concentrated too much on the wrong things, that we haven't invested in infrastructure or that we've given aid without paying attention enough to democracy and freedom. Or you know, there are, There's an analysis that says we could have brought about a transformation and we haven't because we haven't spent aid well enough. Which of those two are you coming down on? I think what I would say is that it's becoming increasingly apparent uh, that we, and this model that we've uh, adopted that has concentrated on the social sector, uh, has not and is not bringing about uh, the economic transformation that we wish for, and that we uh, promised. And we are having really rather significant lessons now uh, held up to us, I believe, in, um, you know, um, the role of China, uh, for instance, in uh, infrastructure, uh, at a time when uh, we, uh, whatever our... um, confidence in ring fencing aid may be when things are going to get uh, tougher and tougher uh, for uh, the western economies to be um, you know generously or substantially um, uh, committed to uh, to development in uh, the developing world so so you're saying that chinese aid which is as you say concentrated primarily in infrastructure and trade uh, has is making a positive economic difference that's your sense um i i believe that it represents a rather its its achievements uh, may not be uh, very uh, apparent uh, uh, to date but i believe it represents probably a better model uh, for this next period than uh, this uh, western what uh, Mellis refers to as the welfare uh, model uh, has actually uh, achieved in uh, uh, in recent years. We've had uh, I don't know what form this will take or how defined, but we've had an extraordinary uh, observation from the uh, British uh, aid minister Andrew Mitchell uh, the other day that uh, we were going to partner China. In, uh, in 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 future uh, development objectives. Well, I'm not quite sure whether the Chinese are going to be. You know, I don't know. I don't know at all what that means, other than that uh, China, perhaps having raised several hundred million of its own people out of uh, poverty, may have uh, better answers. This is what Meles believes, better answers for uh, countries such uh, uh, as Ethiopia than the West can proffer at present. But of course it suits Meles, you know, because um, China is an example of a country that has made rapid economic progress without making uh, yet corresponding progress in terms of democracy and human rights. And, you know, so... uh, is one reason why this is attractive to some African countries that they get money and infrastructure without the lectures from uh, donors about how they should run their country. And um, is that a good thing? I think it's absolutely the appeal, potentially. Uh, I can't claim to know, uh, you know, anywhere near as much about the rest of Africa as I uh, currently, as a result of my researches, know about Ethiopia. Um, um, And and between the lines, I believe that's uh, precisely uh, China's appeal to a country like uh, Ethiopia, Um, not blessed with, uh, incidentally, easily realisable natural assets. Um, Ethiopia is not an oil producer. It may have all sorts of things in its its mountains, but it's going to cost an awful amount to to, uh, extract them. 
but uh, and and it, it is uh, attractive for um, uh, a government such as Melissanoe not to be uh, lectured on uh, quite so uh, consistently. But I also feel that he begins to see that Western aid beyond welfare, beyond old-fashioned charity, actually, is not apparently producing the answers that it promised and that uh, he wants for his country. Peter, you first visited Ethiopia 40 years ago um, and you've uh, been visiting the country ever since. You were there in the awful events of 1984 and after that and you've been visiting a lot recently. What, looking, looking back over your relationship with Ethiopia, what's your sense now of whether it's progressed as much as you would have hoped and liked, whether what its future holds and, and what the role of foreigners has been in, in Ethiopia's uh, development? Um, my very first uh, trip to Ethiopia was in the 1960s. It was then Greater Ethiopia, of course, and included uh, now independent Eritrea. And I do recall in the streets of Asmara, the very quiet streets, quiet and gracious streets of uh, Asmara, seeing the tiny bolt-upright figure of uh, Haile Selassie in uh, the back of his uh, Rolls-Royce on his way to uh, some uh, appointment or other. So this was at the height of the imperial uh, era. So the changes in Ethiopia over the last uh, 40 years have been overwhelming. Um, Ethiopia has uh, thrown over an empire. It uh, had uh, 17 or 18 years of ferocious uh, uh, guerrilla warfare. Uh, It was um, taken over by these uh, Marxist guerrillas who uh, then um, transformed themselves into... um, I believe, a creditable uh, modern government, still with that uh, tremendous party discipline and perhaps um, overreaching party discipline that we've discussed. It's interesting, well, first of all, there has been slow but painful progress. It needs to be uh, sustained and that needs uh, political uh, stability. The big question now is whether this government of Meles Zanawi is able to hand on institutions that will outlive his rule and possibly outlive his party's rule, or at least the uh, predominance of the uh, party leadership that took the country over in the early 1990s. The jury is uh, firmly out on that. It was said to me by a you know, very distinguished uh, observer of the Ethiopian scene that you know, governments on the whole that come to power uh, uh, through the bullet uh, don't uh, leave uh, peacefully. Uh, or without renewed trouble. And that has been uh, the pattern of uh, Ethiopian uh, political development from uh, the year dot. Meles, having achieved a huge amount from the student activist to the guerrilla leader to uh, the national leader for the past two decades, now has his trickiest challenge of all, which is how to leave power. He says he will go by the elections of 2015. And he, um, and he has that um, huge challenge to bring off, to pass on uh, institutions and a level of stability that ensures that Ethiopia in the future does not undergo the sort of convulsions that have uh, attended its history from the year dot and, of course, have made poverty 
and the prospect of hunger and starvation and famine all the worse. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, and my guest has been Peter Gill, who is the author of Famine and Foreigners, Ethiopia Since Live Aid. Peter, thanks very much for coming on Development Drums. Pleasure, Owen.